Date of recording, February 19th, 2021. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk Media with Vedanta Kari. For today's episode, we're talking about Hayao Miyazaki. And my guest for today is Richard Ramos. Hey, Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice, it's nice being here, honestly. I really love your podcast, man. It's really, Thank it's you. really cool. <laughs> Thank you. So you just want to really quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is, of course, Richard Ramos. I'm uh, Ithaca College Film BFA. I graduated uh, 2020, so uh, that was fun. It was nice having uh, uh, pretty much a Zoom graduation, so that was interesting. But, you know, it, it, it was... It was unique. I actually got to, uh, quick thing, I managed to get on uh, the Los Angeles trip in that uh, spring of 2020. So I got to experience a bit of it uh, before, obviously, you know, you know, COVID happened and like quarantine and stuff. So I, at least I got to experience a, a bit of that. So that was fun. You left just in time before everything went to Yeah, exactly. Like it was like, I, I heard the first time I heard about COVID was in like, a, like a horror class I took at at the thing we were we were watching 28 days later it's like oh the, we have a new like virus thing it's like oh dang <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of out of the loop not gonna lie <laughs> yeah so anyways today's topic is about Hayao Miyazaki the legendary animator writer and director most notably one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli and so I want to get a gist as to how you were introduced to his work I have a very interesting history. I think uh, with Hayao Miyazaki, like I will say this up front, I grew up on his movies and stuff. I, I watched it during my, my adolescence and my teenage years. I loved the, the heck out of those films. Uh, my first, the one I distinctly remember first watching was uh, Castle in the Sky. I watched that uh, during a class. Uh, I, I don't know why, they just showed it in like the cafeteria at one point. I don't remember the context, I was like four or something. But I, the first one that really grasped, uh, grasped my attention and really got me hooked on the director was uh, Spirited Away. Um, I can tell you the story for that. Uh, it was during a, the block of Cartoon Network Fridays. You remember that block? Uh, yes. Yeah, They uh, obviously that usually they showed like cartoons and stuff around that time, but they would occasionally show movies. And one of them they did show at one point was Spirited Away. Something about that, uh, watching it for the first time, I was kind of floored. I think it was like eight or nine at the time. And it was just, I don't think I fully understood the story at the time, but just something about the visuals and like so much distinctive imagery, like right away it hooks you. It was almost like this magical journey, honestly. And I, I to be honest, I'll say this up front. I think Spirit Away is probably my favorite uh, Studio Ghibli Miyazaki movie, just because of that first experience was enough to really hook me. It's one of my favorite films uh, for that reason. And I don't think a film has really gave me that kind of experience ever since like that one really just like it, it, to, to be honest it, it got me interested in filmmaking as well it's just like that's how powerful it was in my opinion what was your experience with uh miyazaki's films 2008 they showed it in my school's auditorium and i was eight years old at the time so i loved the visuals but i didn't really pick up on what the story was i just remember being freaked out by her parents turning into pigs <laughs> that scared yeah. me as a kid you know, obviously, you know, the story I think is really good, but I think what really gets me is the world of the story. Like you could, there's so much great imagery in there. Obviously the parents turning to the pigs is like the first big moment there. Uh, there's the spider guy with all those soot creatures. Like that one's great. The the hot tubs, like the sauna and stuff. And like that weird gunky creature that, that goes through there. Uh, you know, I think it was Abiyaka or Bob, Bobby Yager or something that that old witch who like just flies through the room and stuff the baby like so much weird stuff in there some of it's explained some of it's not explained I kind of like that
most of it's original. Like there's no, it's not like it's based on like a story like Alice in Wonderland where there's like established characters. This is all stuff he came up with, you know? I'm sure some of it has like Japanese, you know, roots and mythology and stuff, but still this was all he created, which I find very fascinating, you know? I do agree that this seems like the most creative Miyazaki film probably of all time so far. Yeah. Going along with it, like he creates this world like in the very literal sense, like he, for, like the way he animates, uh, you know, you could, I've seen documentaries and, and like stuff on the process. He draws everything by hand. And I think, I think he's done that for every film. Like, and I, I, I remember uh, seeing a clip of him, like, like hand drawing the anime sequence in Panya where she, where she's like walking or running on the wave and like that scene. So like, it was just like, he, he does all that inch by inch, each frame he specifically creates. And if you know, about animation that's a long tedious process but like he does it uh not like it's no problem but like he's like a, a freaking machine is like he just he's fully he's fine with doing all that and very rarely does he ever use like computers some of the stuff he has used cg like when princess mononoke where what's the name of the hero again i forget ashitaka wait yeah ashitaka yeah this ashitaka you know when his hand is all corrupt I think that's one mm-hmm. of the very few instances that Miyazaki has used yeah. CGI. And I, he has used computers. Let me make that clear. He has used it. Uh, one notable example was, you know, the titular castle and House Moving Castle. Like all the, like it's still hand-drawn. It still has the hand-drawn aesthetic. So it doesn't look CGI. But every moving part of that thing is like, like computers, like just shifting it around. It's so subtle. You you like, you wouldn't even notice it if it wasn't like on the behind the scenes feature. And I think I, I like that so much when like computer elements are like so meshed into something like whether it's live action or or you know animation it's it doesn't stick out you know and i think i I like when that's when computers are used for that instead of just oh let's make everything like cgi you know let's make everything cgi to the point where it's distracting you know agreed and i think another positive of using so little cgi is that even 17 years later, the CGI in Howl's Moving Castle still looks amazing because they don't rely on it too much. Yeah, you, you barely notice it, if at all, you know. I mean, maybe Princess Mononoke CGI is a yeah. little dated, but mm. not too bad because it's only used a couple of times. And, and you can even argue that it kind of it works with the film. It's kind of intentionally, like, off because it, it's like a demon curse. So, like, if that that's the element that feels out of, like, out of this world a bit because it's literally like a demon arm and such so you can even argue the artistic merit of, of that decision and such so it, it, even then i think it kind of works with the film why do you specifically like miyazaki from all the animators directors out there one major reason i think is that he really every film is distinctly like from his style to the writing to the characters everything feels like it's his movie like there's rarely a movie that he's made that doesn't feel like a Ghibli movie even like some of his earlier works and, and such, like even the ones that don't have some of like the distinctive, you know, things you see. I think every, you know, like every great auteurist director, you know, he's a guy who has a certain amount of things that appears in his films. First I talked about obviously was the animation. He does everything by hand. He has that like rich, rigid, diligent work ethic. And so you really see that in his films. His animation is beautiful, first of all. I think that's pretty obvious in every one of his films. But I think the real thing that i think works in his movies is the characters and the worlds i think i think miyazaki writes some of the most well-written characters in like any kind of film like they're so dynamic they're so distinctive they have all these like quirky 
moments that they feel like real people i think that's the thing even the most outlandish characters feel like real people to us and i think that's a testament to his writing as well as you know his animation because like anyone can do a good animation you know it takes a lot of hard work obviously but like it takes a lot to make even the most fantastical stuff seem very down to earth and i think miyazaki does that incredibly you know I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I feel like Miyazaki films are more character driven than story driven. And yeah, no. examples like uh, My Neighbor Totoro, where it's more about the atmosphere and the characters rather than the story. Yeah. You know, obviously, like, you know, how plot driven a Miyazaki film is depends on the film. But like, generally speaking, like, I think Totoro is a great example. Like, if you map out the plot of Totoro, not a whole lot happens, but it's more so about the atmosphere and, and the world that they live in, you know, like the mundanity mixed with the mystical, you know, it's a very slice of life movie, but then there's also this giant cat creature who can fly in the air and, and like a cat bus and all these weird elements that all that at the same time feel like very, you know, at homely, there's a homely quality to it. Would you say that Studio Ghibli films are popular in the West or do you think they're mostly japanese face in terms of popularity i i think they are I, de I definitely think compared to a lot of other like both anime uh filmmakers and just in general foreign filmmakers in general i think there is a bigger popularity of uh miyazaki's films in the west i think part of that has to do with uh you know the work that uh disney in particular have done with like uh dubbing their films you know and i you know, I'm not going to get into the sub versus dub debate. That's just a, a whole bunch of semantics. But I think, <laughs> I, I do think in, in a way it's dub films have a necessary purpose in like introducing especially younger kids to like foreign movies. And I do think like, I, I do want to give praise to the great job that Disney did back in those days. Because like they could have easily, and I, I one of the things I love about Miyazaki is he's very explicit. He does not want you messing up the dub. He doesn't want you like uh, <laughs> editing the crap out of it. I, I do love the story. Uh, I'm going to bring up uh, Weinstein if that's... Just, but yeah, that's it, fine. It, Weinstein wanted to mess up uh, Princess Mononoke. He wanted to do a Miramax version that like messed it up and like Miyazaki literally like sent a sword <laughs> I read that had that. the note... <laughs> that had a note saying no cuts <laughs> like that so that was just like yeah fuck you to Weinstein there uh, in general Miyazaki cares about how his movies are presented and so like you know I gotta give credit to how Disney handled it like their their dubs are like as faithful as you can get to like the original without just you know it being directly subbed like obviously they they make some changes and sometimes they have to add the occasional line like oh this is a temple from yada yada explain some of the more Japanese specific references but besides that it's almost one-to-one -one faithful and I really do appreciate that and I also gotta give credit like if you look at the credits for any dubbed version of a Miyazaki film, they're like some big name stars who like voice it that you might not even realize voice those films. Like they attract like big celebrities to do those voices. And for the most part, they always usually work with the characters. It's, it's usually not like an Eddie Murphy or like a Mike Myers trying to like, you know, very obviously it's that them voicing the character. They usually work really well with the film itself. They had Shia LaBeouf voice a character. And I didn't, I watched the wind rises and, uh, I didn't even realize that John Krasinski voiced a character until I saw the credits. Yeah, exactly. Like they they get a bunch of them. Some of them are more obvious. I think Billy Crystal in House Moving Castle is kind of obviously Billy Crystal, but even then I think it kind of uh works with uh the character. Also, like rest in peace, Phil Hartman. He played the cat in Kiki's Delivery Surface. And uh yeah, he yeah, it was it's a great work. He's Phil Hartman was a very talented uh 
you know, voice actor. And if you weren't familiar with his work on like The Simpsons and such. So, yeah. I think especially during the 2000s, dubs had a very bad reputation, especially coming from Japan. I'm sure you've heard about those. Yeah, yeah. And I think definitely in, in many ways, I think Miyazaki's films helped, you know, bring a bigger awareness uh, to like, you know, I, partly because of how good the dubs were. It helped like bring about a part of like the, the bigger anime popularity that's been, I would say, you know, in the 2010s and 2020s now, like anime is much more popular now than initially was by the time like um, Spirit Away was released. And I, I do want to point out that, you know, back in 2001, Spirit Away won the best animated film Oscar, which I think it's the only non-American film to ever win that Oscar uh, in like the 20 years that award's been around. And I think it's very impressive. I think, and I think part of that actually has to do with Miyazaki's films themselves, not just the dubs or anything like that. There was like this universal appeal. Like these are like very universal stories. Like uh, like a character like Chihiro feel in Spirit Away feels like a real child. You know, it's very, he's so good at getting the authenticness of a child, a child's experience and how they would react to like strange events in the story. Cause she, you know, she's a little whiny, she cries, but at the same time, she's still like, she's, there is still this bravery, I think. And I, there's still this curiosity, this innate curiosity as well. So I think, and I think he does that with all this like characters so well as well. They, they capture like these subtle details and subtle moments. I, I do want to quickly bring up the fact that in Spirited Away, there's a minor, super minor, you barely even notice scene where she's like putting on her shoes and like she like like moves the, the horn of the, like the heel and stuff just to get her foot in. Like that like super minor detail that no one else would notice, but like any other animated film, they just have poop, just like put the foot in like it was nothing. <laughs> yeah. But like they added that extra detail just to, just for the sake of having a more realistic reaction. It's, it's subtle stuff like that that no, not everyone notices that he puts in his films that really shows the the hard work he puts into his works. And I, I can't praise him enough for that, honestly. Yeah. And so before we break down the individual Miyazaki films, what do you think the overarching themes are that are prevalent in a lot of them? For me, I think it's nature is very prevalent in these. Yeah. Films. He's a very, I think, you know, I think it's very obvious from his movies, but also his personal stance that he's a very avid environmentalist. Like this was obvious in like Princess Mononoke. You see, you see a bit of it in Spirited Away. You see, you know, in general, it's like a lot of his films are like the mix, the fighting between like mankind and like industrialization and nature. I think Princess Mononoke is a great example of that. And I and I like about it, you know, what I really like about it is he doesn't make it like this like Fern Gully or Avatar level, like, you know, like, oh, big corporations are bad and, you know, they're ruining the environment and we have to, you know, save the trees and stuff. Like, obviously he's very supportive of nature and stuff, but he doesn't, he adds like nuance to it. And I think you very much see that in Princess Mononoke because, uh, you know, the the character that represents the in industrialization, you know, I think Lady, uh, Lady Aboshi's like the character that represents like the industrialization. She rules over Irontown. Like she's in direct conflict with nature, but it's not like she's like a villain villain, you know, she's an antagonist for sure. But like, you see the very obvious reason why she's doing what she's doing. She has this whole community that she cares about. And like, she kind of, you know, we understand her reasoning for why she is expanding and ruining nature. And, you know, she's not like a Lorax level villain. She's like, you understand her reasoning. And I think this kind of complexity is in a lot of Miyazaki's films, which is another aspect I like. Is like, he very rarely is there like clear cut villains in Miyazaki's films. Usually it's either there's no major antagonist or, like there are antagonists, but they're like 
you know, gray antagonists. You know, you understand their reasoning. They're not mustache twirling villains. And because of that, you know, again, it's a bit of realistic nature to it. The conflicts are based on realism. There's no Disney villain songs, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? Do you think that there are any true villains in the, in the movie The Wind Rises? There's, you know, there's a villain, but it's not like uh, one guy is the villain of the movie. I think more so it's just like war itself is like the villain. And I, I think that's another major theme you can point out. It's like Miyazaki is very staunchly anti-war. Going back to the 2001 Oscar, Miyazaki refused to go to the ceremony because he didn't support, you know, United States going to Afghanistan. So he did that as kind of a protest to that, you know. Uh, House Whipping Castles is another example. That film is very staunchly anti-war. That was like made right after the Iraq War. So obviously, the main thing about The Wind Rises is like this main ki- this main guy who's based on a real person uh, loves making planes. So, you, you know, he's a very enthusiastic like uh, you know engineer who likes making these designs and loves planes itself. But at the same time, he knows that these planes will be used for war, for like destruction, and like it's this juxtaposition between the passion he has for making these like planes and what they're actually being used for. You know, he sees the beauty in, you know, vehicles that are directly going to cause like death and pain and destruction. We want to break down the individual films now. So Mm -hmm. on my list, I have spirited away, Totoro, Howl's moving castle, wind rises, princess, Mononoke. And what was that one, Lupin, the one you recommended? Oh, yeah, Castle Cagliostro. That's the loop on the third movie. I know you haven't seen that movie, and that's fine. I just want to talk a little bit about it just to get out of the way, because that is... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's Miyazaki's first movie. It is based on the Lupin the Third franchise. That was actually, you know, Miyazaki actually got to start working on the Lupin the Third anime. There's a, there's a bunch of different anime versions of Lupin, but he worked on, like, the very, very first version of it. He's called the Green Suit. Uh, Lupin because he wears a green suit uh and so like even though he you know there's a lot of back you know there's a lot of character and backstory to that I don't think you need to know what Lupin is to get into the castle Cagliostro because I think it does a very good job you know explaining the world without explaining it now like, there's no exposition but you get like the characters and what they do and it's very much it's a very simple like you know save the princess from the evil bad guy type story the plot's simplistic but I think where Miyazaki shines is through the animation. Particularly, there's this very iconic, like, clockwork tower, like, battle where, like, Lupin and the main bad guy fight in this, inside a clock. Like, they're they're fighting on the gears and stuff. Uh, have you ever seen The Great Mouse Detective? Just curious. I have not. Well, in that film, there is a uh, also a clockwork scene that was actually directly inspired by the castle Clacky So, like, that's another case where like Miyazaki's works has been influencing like western media particularly Disney and I will say you know even within uh I will say it's a very early Miyazaki movie there's not much of his major themes for the most part however I think I think nature still plays a part in it you know there's a there's a scene where like the castle literally rises up from like like the ocean, like Atlantis in a way. And, and, and Miyazaki gives special detail to the water and the, and the planes and stuff. Miyazaki loves to draw two things, nature and planes and like machines and stuff, basically. And you definitely see that in that movie. Cause like I mentioned, there's the gears in the clock tower, there's the water, a bunch of that, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it. Cause I know you haven't seen it, but I would recommend watching it. It's a very, 
it, it is very early Miyazaki, but I still think it's very interesting watch uh, if you get the chance. Yeah. Next, I want to talk about Spirit Away, but before that, you kept mentioning Disney a bunch of times. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Miyazaki has often been called the Walt Disney of anime. I was wondering if you agree with that. I do in the sense that I agree. Like, I think Miyazaki honestly is as influential as uh, Walt Disney, not just in anime specifically, but also just like Western animation. I just brought up the example of like The Great Mouse Detective, but throughout people have been inspired by Miyazaki's works. I think, you know, there's a beauty to it. There's, you know, like modern cartoonists like Steven Universe have been inspired by it, other people. I understand the comparison. I understand why people say it, but I, in many ways, I think Miyazaki is much more his own filmmaker than just like, oh, he's the Japanese Walt Disney, et cetera, et cetera, whatever, whatever the frick that means. But like, he obviously, as we talked about, he has his own themes, he has his own characteristics, he has his own way of telling stories that's uniquely his own. I do think the, the comparison between Walt Disney and Miyazaki is valid because I think both of them do a good job of like telling stories that have this like universal quality to it. They're very different types of stories, but still like, you know, I think uh, they have this like world reaching appeal. That's kind of why they're both very popular. Gotcha. So now let's talk about Spirited Away. This is easily the most popular film that Miyazaki has ever been involved in. We we definitely talked about a lot of aspects of it that I wanted to get across. Uh, do you have any thoughts uh, on it uh, that you want to bring up? I just want to say that for this episode, I watched I watched this film for the first time in 13 years. And mm -hmm. it was such an interesting parallel to watch this as a kid in 2008 and then 13 years later watch it for the first time like i definitely remembered scenes in my head you ever feel like that when you watch yeah, yeah, yeah. a show or movie after such a long time yeah yeah absolutely uh yeah that film like i said there's a lot of great imagery i think one of his one of his uh core strengths is how much he pays attention to like the female characters of his stories uh in particular with spirit away as an example he mentioned that one of the specific reasons why he created spirit away was because of how much he wanted a character like a, a female you know a little girl that acted like a little girl you know she wasn't like a magical girl or, or anything like that he she want he wanted a realistic depiction of a, of a, a capable strong child who still feels like a child and i think i i love chiharo's arc in the movie like you can clearly see it just by comparing like when she like first enters like what the spirit away world and when she comes right back out they're both very similar types of scenes but you could tell from her reaction that she's clearly matured she's grown she's no longer like the crying child who's scared of everything and doesn't like change it's it's so it's such great storytelling i think and i i do want to briefly uh mention this because i do think miyazaki care pays special attention to his female characters in particular. Not every male and female have to get together in a movie. And I like that oftentimes they're just like either friends or if there is a romantic aspect, it's like so subtle, you barely notice it, I think. And I, yeah. and I like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's implied that Chihiro and uh, was it the river god, they have yeah. some ha feeling. Han. Yeah, they have some feelings yeah. for each other, but it's very subtle. Yeah, it's, it's and even in that case, like obviously the whole film isn't about their romance. They don't get together. They have their heads close together, but no, nothing like nothing like that. So yeah, you know, yeah, very much breaking away from a lot of animation. Uh, one thing I want to bring up is the the theme of like names. Yes. I think is a major theme in that movie. Obviously, because Jihiro literally like 
she sells her name as one of the conditions for working in the bathhouse to save her parents. And one of the major themes is like she doesn't lose her identity. She she's referred to as Sen for much of the movie, and she almost loses her I, her name and her identity at the very end. Uh, similar situation with Han. Han forgets his identity. That's why he's he's been working for like the Abayaga for so long. And like at the end, like uh, Chihiro manages to like save Han by remembering he's the river spirit and like he's his dragon. Really taking care of your identity and like holding on to your identity is very important in that film. And I think it's a very interesting theme for that film. Again, we mentioned environmentalism at the beginning and I love the story with this polluted river ghost and how they oh, yeah, yeah. pull all that junk out. I thought that was an incredible way to just, you know, talk against pollution, particularly water pollution. Yeah. Yeah, first of all, that that weird scene where you see that his head pop him is like, thank you, or whatever. It's, first of all, it's super creepy. <laughs> but uh, that being said, yeah, I love... The thing is, the whole movie isn't even about environmentalism. That's just one scene. But it's at the same time, it's so poignant. Because for the most part, we just think like this weird, disgusting creature. It's a very funny scene, too, because everyone's like all disgusted by it. And he does a great job animating like the revulsion, like the hairs standing on their head. That's it's it's very funny and very well done, but we just think it's just like a regular monster until he gets until he get they get in you know he gets bathed essentially and like you know Chihiro notices she feels like a thorn coming out but when she pulls it out it's like a bicycle handle and such and then she and all the other workers pull the handle out and then just spews out all of this like garbage and and stuff like that and you know obviously. We find out it, it was a river spirit who was, you know, a monster because of pollution and stuff. And I think it's a very cool way of like putting in like a, an environmental thing without it being like heavy handed and such. There's another character in Spirited Away. I think his name's uh, No Face. I think that's the name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> great character. Great. It's just like great. I had a very hard time understanding what the character was supposed to symbolize. Part of it might have to do with the identity theme, because literally his name is No Face. He doesn't have a set identity. I think part of his character has to do with like greed, like a tale of like a message about greed, because like he like gives away gold for like uh, for like food and stuff. And he's, he, he tries to bribe Chihiro into like being his friend, essentially. I think his character essentially just wants companionship. He, he just doesn't understand how to get it like like a, like an awkward like teen not knowing how to socialize essentially and that's kind of what i think his character is essentially about he doesn't know the right ways of being a friend and because of that and because he's just exposed to the greed of these awful people in the hot tub eventually he becomes like this monster eating everything you know i think there's clear like messages about human nature in that regard all he really wants is like companionship and stuff so that's why you know, he stops being a monster once Chihiro is like, stop, you're going too far, essentially. I think, obviously, there's a lot of things you can pull from that character, and he's, he has such a great design. I see a lot of people in, like, comic conventions cosplay as him because of how cool his design is, but I think we have to talk about this scene before we end this off. The train scene, I think, yes. is such yeah, that is such an iconic moment, mainly because of how, like, little is said. Like, when you watch that scene, there's not, you know not a whole lot of music. It's just like pure atmosphere. There's no dialogue. There's just like Chihiro and No Face are sitting on a train. There's like these spirits like there. They pass through the river. They see an island. There's very subtly like an implication that a spirit has like a mother and child. Like there's some dark implications there. But like 
it's just pure atmosphere. Like it's it's a type of scene that some executive would be like, oh, nothing happens in that scene. She'll just uh, cut it or whatever. There probably is some kind of thematic connection to the film. But in general, I think it just helps add to the world. It's just like this brief moment to like compress and just bask in the beauty because a lot of a lot of stuff has happened prior to that you know that you know no face was rampaging all that stuff but now it's like this brief moment to calm down relax and enjoy the world essentially and i like that we do have this very moment of calm in the film this might be a random question but have you ever played a diner dash game uh no why because I can just see this whole bathhouse thing being like a time management video game like 10, 15 years down the line. Oh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> kind of like an Animal Crossing game because like, you know, it's like kind of Tom Nook is like, oh, you have to uh, pay off this debt that you want to get off the, you know, see your parents again, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Very slice of life <laughs> aspect. Yeah, I could see this being made into a time management video game somewhere down the line. <laughs> Next, we want to talk about My Neighbor Totoro and... I feel like we already mentioned this at the beginning, but this is a more atmospheric kind of movie, yeah. a more ambience-based movie than a story as contrasted to, say, Spirited Away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot less to pull from it, I will say. Not that that's a negative, but I just think compared to his other works, like it's more so just about enjoying the world, I think. I believe that his mother had tuberculosis when he was pretty young, and so that's why um, the mother in this story also has tuberculosis and... Same with the love interest in The Wind Rises. So he draws on a lot of personal things that are pretty um, heartbreaking, like having TB, but it's also able to keep the upbeat energy in, say, Totoro. Yeah, that is that is a fair point. Like, there is that aspect of the mother, you know, who is sick, you know. So in many ways, um, you could say maybe this, this film is like a childlike escape, in a way, from reality, in a way. Because like there's the harsh reality of her her mother potentially dying, so she escapes to a world where there's fun monsters and like, you know, she gets to just enjoy being a kid in a way. So next movie I want to talk about is Howl's Moving Castle, and I have very mixed thoughts about this because it, it's a very controversial film. I will say, yeah. yes, I feel like there's just too much going on in this that it doesn't really feel cohesive to me. Uh, it's interesting because this, this is one of the rare adaptations. Of, of anything Hayao Miyazaki's ever done uh, because it's a direct adaptation of a European fantasy book. I don't think it's a very sh- faithful adaptation. I'm not 100% because I haven't read it. But regardless, it's um, I definitely think it's, it's more so a lot of elements that Miyazaki adds. I think the war aspect is probably what you're specifically talking about because like, it kind of is it's a major part of the film, but at the same time, it kind of feels like it's it's comes out of nowhere and takes over the film because it's I will say it's it's one of uh, Miyazaki's rare romances. Like explicit, it's a very explicitly romantic love story type of movie. But even then, it, there's a big focus on like characters, character development, and uh, you know, growth in a way uh, than a lot of other traditional love stories uh, will do. But there is this huge anti-war aspect to it that can definitely seem like too much is happening at the same time. I will say the first time I watched this movie. I definitely kind of understood like it it was it was weird because it felt like so much was happening at the start you know uh this woman she meets a strange man and then she meets a witch and now she's old and now she's now she works for the the house the house and then the guy's an evil bird that drops bombs or whatever I don't it's a lot happens to be fair after a few more rewatches I I kind of got to appreciate the film a bit more but I can definitely see why it's one of uh, Miyazaki's more polarizing films I do think 
particularly with the anti-war aspect, you could either think it's a, a good addition to the story or it just takes too much time out of it and isn't that well explored. I think one positive I want to say about the film is that at the end, um, the main character, she reverts to her younger self, but she retains the white hair. And oh. so I, re- I, I love that part. Yeah, yeah. I, I will say uh, a bit more of a story time for me. But uh, the first time I rented the movie from Blockbuster, <laughs> but uh, uh, I saw the cover. It was uh, Chihiro, no, not Chihiro, uh, Sophia with her white hair and Hal, who's a giant bird. Like I think one of the scenes from the po- from the movie made as a cover. And when I saw the beginning of the film, obviously what I like about it is that they, they don't look like that. They look, they have completely different looks from the cover. So I was like, oh, what, what, what's happening? So what I like about it is the fact that, you know, both characters like personal growth and development are reflected in ha- their physical appearance. Just, uh, just to give Hal's an example, like, when you see him in the beginning, like he's all like fancy, he has all these elegant clothing, he has the blonde hair, you know, very much, you know, under the persona of like this lady killer who just steals people's hearts and et cetera, et cetera. But then once, you know, uh, Sophia enters his life and like as an old woman, older woman, and like, you know, he's we get to see more of his human side. Obviously, there's a scene where his hair becomes black and he's all depressed and boogery for some reason it's covered in boogers for some weird reason but uh that's where we kind of get the more humanizing aspects of it and uh the same applies to sophia she starts off the movie very meek to herself very much afraid of like romantic relationships and the like Uh, but by the end she's a much more confident and uh independent woman in a way and she definitely grows partly because of the time she spent as an older woman i did a very recent episode about womanhood and aging in the media where oh yeah you know, women are kind of scorned by society for aging. And so I love the fact that with the positivity at the end that you can still be beautiful and still look older. I, I do appreciate that about the movie, actually, because for most of the, you know, obviously in the beginning, she's like this pretty, you know, wo- you know, young woman, essentially. But for a lot of the film, she's an older woman. And I do like that aspect, by the way, the fact that we do get so much time with her as an old lady. Like we don't, there's not a lot of, both movies and anime movies that focus on like old people, especially old ladies. Like there's, it's a very rare thing to see. So that's a cool aspect of it. But also the fact is like, you know, obviously, you know, she suffers a little bit because she's old, like she's not as physically capable, but in a, in a lot of ways she gets to develop because she has this older age and she's, you know, one of the quotes I think uh, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, when you're older, you don't care so much about beauty, for instance, you know? So she becomes a lot more maturing because of her condition. So she she grows a lot through like growing like 60 years or something from a spell and stuff. And like, well, and I don't, and I like that it's not like, yeah, she's old, but it's not, and it's like meant to be a, like a curse, but in a lot of ways, it's like the best thing that happens to her because she does grow as a character because of what what she experiences and what she does as like an old lady. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I want to move on next to Princess Mononoke because it has similar themes. But before that, do you have mm-hmm. any final comments? Uh, I just, I will say, I, I do want to point out, I, I will say this, besides Spirit Away, this one is actually my second favorite Miyazaki film. To me personally, this might be more, this might be more personal uh, connection than like, you know, because I do acknowledge there is a lot going on in the movie. And I completely understand why someone wouldn't be a big fan of it. Uh, you know, besides the obvious goods that come with a Miyazaki film, the animation, the characters, et cetera, 
there's a lot going on. I think it's one of the best love stories ever written because of how much how well written the characters are and how well the development is for those characters. You know, there's and there's a lot of great and there's a lot of great magical stuff in it too. Like the scarecrow who's like walking, who's like bopping around on one stick the entire movie, which is just a funny sight to see whenever he appears. And it's just there's there's a lot of subtle things that you might not notice when you uh uh you know knows the film i think i think it's much better in a rewatch i will say uh i don't i don't know how many times you saw the film but you know i, I do think it's maybe it might be I, I think it's one of those films that works better in a rewatch i'm not saying you're gonna love it but I, I do think it's one of those films that grows on you the more you're willing to to watch it uh but yeah i will say uh one minor point before we move on i like the it's very subtle you you might not even notice it but like in the beginning they specifically talk about like the prince who's missing and like i think part of the reason why there's a war is because of the missing prince uh and then we see this scarecrow character throughout the entire film at the very end we find out that the scarecrow specifically is the missing prince so if you didn't notice that little detail you know you might think that the scarecrow reveal comes out of nowhere but there is it is it is in the movie you just have to you know yeah it, it rewards you for paying a bit more attention you know stuff like that all right let's move on to princess one and okay the first thing i want to say is that it is a very common trope with good versus evil, good self versus evil self in films like Princess Mononoke and uh, The Prince of Persia, Sands of Time trilogy. I don't know if you've played that. And also uh, Sonic Unleashed, where Sonic turns into a werehog. So <laughs> good, good and evil yeah. is a very common theme. It was very popular during late 90s and 2000s. But I feel like this does it in a very interesting and unique way with the setting, yeah. and I have to say the setting, it's set in the Muromachi period, and it's very interesting. Yeah, like this, like, fantasy, magical, like, version of, of the period. I, I yeah. Um, I will say, like, like you were saying about good and evil, I think, I think this is a very gray movie, I will say. I think, you know, obviously the hero is Ashitaka. Uh, he's very, he's very, like, white morality-wise, but uh, everyone else, I think, you know, a lot of them have their selfish motivations. A lot of them aren't just clear-cut heroes. And even the most selfish characters have understandable reasons for their motives. Uh, one aspect I like, he's a very like underrated character, I think, is, uh, I don't know, it's, he's like the shopkeeper or like the person who takes in Ashitaka, this old man who takes Ashitaka in the beginning. And then he's like, you. Uh, um, sorry. In the beginning, you think this older man who takes care of Ashitaka is like a good person, you know, because of his good actions in the beginning. And then at the very end, he's the one who tries to steal the demon's head and like for very selfish reasons. So he becomes kind of an antagonist. So it's like it's very interesting how they like play with character types. And like, I don't think any character in this movie is like pure, like good or evil. They all have shades of gray. Like even Ashitaka himself, who's like the closest thing the film has to a hero, he's still like brutally like harms and kills people. You know, he, cu he cuts off a person's like arms with an arrow, which is just kind of badass. But like, you know, he's he's not completely uh, heroic either. So I, I like that aspect to it. Yeah, and I've heard criticism uh, specifically from nostalgia critic that San could have been a lot better realized in the film. I was wondering if you thought if you had any thoughts about that. It, it's interesting because there are many ways this could have played out. Like she could have been either like this like villainous character who's like you know beastly because she's raised by wolves, or, or they could do the exact opposite. They can make her like this Pocahontas type character who's like always good because she's like connected to nature and stuff like that. But I think I think it's a happy medium of the two. Like. 
where you understand her motives as to why she's like, you know, helping the wolves and nature itself. But like at the same time, nature isn't naturally good. You know, there are beasts and creatures who want to kill and destroy people. You know, the main the reason he got a curse, uh, Ashitaka got a curse was because of a boar, an evil boar that was like attacking the citizens. So like. You know, because she's part of nature, she's not necessarily a good or bad person. She has aspects of both. And I really think she is such an interesting character in that regard. I think her and Lady Aboshi, the two, like, main forces that are fighting against each other in the movie, are such interesting, again, a great example of, like, great female characters in Miyazaki's movies. Both of them are so dynamic in their own ways without just being a, a cookie-cutter, you know, badass you see in a generic action movie, you know? That type of thing. yeah. And this might be a complex answer, but what do you think the message of the film is? The whole thing is like a bat is like the battle between mankind and machines and nature. And I do think Miyazaki definitely has a preference for the nature side uh, because, you know, I think I think more is invested in the beauty of nature and even some of the beastly aspects of it are like nothing compared to like the destruction that mankind provokes through like machines and guns and all that stuff. But at the same time, he's also like saying, you know, there is room for humanity and like machinery. It's just you can't be so excessive about it. I think there's like this aspect of human greed is the evil that's ruining, you know, you know, the environment and everything, you know. Obviously, there was a conflict between Lady Eboshi and Princess Mononoke, but things don't get really bad until, you know, Lady Eboshi shoots the the main spirit god in the head. Gruesome scene, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> really messed up. Um, and then, you know, nature rises up. It's like a very obvious, like, global warming type of thing made, like, long before, like, the Inconvenient Truth or when people started to give a crap about global warming. So, like, it's this idea, like, you know, humanity's not inherently evil, and like nature's not inherently good, but at the same time, human greed has the capacity to bring about the worst aspects of nature, and everyone's screwed in the end. Both nature and humanity, I think, is kind of the message he's trying to convey through Princess Mononoke. It's a very nuanced take on the whole environmental theme that I think really speaks volumes about our current situation with how you know crazy climate change is right now. You know, the the globe uh, to put up you know topical reference to it that like the winter that texas is going through is one of the aspects of like mankind you know and nature you know being messed up and I, I give my regards to those who are suffering in texas you know but it's like climate change has gotten very bad at this point and it, i think the message it conveys in prison mononoke is more relevant than ever i think yeah i think the more time passes on presuming that global warming still gets worse this is just going to become a more and more relevant film mm -hmm. yeah what are your thoughts on on the on princess mononoke i think it's a good film um it can be a little hard to understand the message sometimes especially if you're not super familiar with miyazaki i think and what he goes for in most of the films you know i uh i i i, I agree in a sense like if Nothing's clear cut in this movie, and I do appreciate the ambiguity, but I can understand someone not fully getting what the film's trying to convey because, like I said, everyone's kind of ambiguously ambiguous in their morality. So, I could definitely, I could definitely see why it would be vague to some people. The themes of the film. Yeah, and I think similar to Howl's Moving Castle, a rewatch might help clarify things a yeah, lot. Yeah, yeah. I think you know. Just if you've already watched Mizaka's movies once, watch it again. Like, there's no, there's no, there's no, nothing you get 
from just watching them more, you know? Yeah. But but yeah, I do think uh, the nuances of that film is benefited through rewatches, I will say. Do you believe in the theory that all the Ghibli films and all the Miyazaki films are connected somehow? Um, thematically, yes. I'm, but I'm not going to I'm not going to be like, oh, it's, just, you know, the Pixar theory. I'm not going to say like, oh, they're all in one universe. And like, you know, this character is that character from the future or something like that. But uh, but I do think, yeah, there is a there is a clear thematic connection uh, to to the films. There's a there's a video essay I found. By I think it's the Royal Ocean Film Academy. I think that's what their YouTube channel is. That really kind of explains uh, why, like Miyazaki's kind of making one big film about planes, for instance. And that's kind of just one theme you can kind of poke uh, from it. Just like you know, obviously planes is a big uh, theme, but yeah, throughout there's there's constant like themes that kind of mesh and interconnect. You know, because like Princess Mononoke is very much like the environmental theme on Blast. And like, but I, but you also see the environmental theme in other films like Princess Mononoke and Nausicaa and Ponyo. Uh, but then also like there's the anti-war aspect, which is in like Castle in the Sky and uh, Howl's Moving Castle and The Wind Rises. You know, all these different kind of themes are meshed together throughout the film. Some of them are explored more so than in others. You know, there's the plane imagery also, you know, like planes as representations of humans' ability to fly and flying in general there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of airplanes or airplane type technology in Miyazaki's films he, he, he really loves his planes man but uh, he loves planes yeah but I do think I do think which is one of the reasons why I love his movies every every one of them has this connection this thematic connection to each other even if it's not like you know this character appear you know even if it's not the same characters or the same worlds they all feel connected yeah so yeah and so the final film that i want to talk about is the wind rises but before that i was wondering if there were any other films you wanted to briefly talk about um i mean you know i don't think in my personal opinion i don't think miyazaki's made a bad film you know i think his 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 most polarizing is definitely house movie castle but even then i wouldn't call it uh a bad film you you might beg to differ but like i think he does a good job of like with his characters and his writing making you feel for the characters and the world, even when it's like bizarre as heck, you know? And I uh, I do want to bring up uh, Kiki's Delivery Service just very briefly, uh, because it's, a, it's similar to My Tabor Totoro. It's a very slice of life movie with like magical aspects to it. I don't, you know, there, there's a bit of stuff about like, you know, the working girl, you know, trying to make a living, you know, very, um, there's a bit of that in the film. And again, it's another great example of a great, um, great female character from uh, Ghibli. You know, Kiki feels just like a very genuine, like, teenager, even though she's a witch, you know, uh, for that. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't I think that's pretty much my thoughts. What uh, Anything else you wanted to mention? Uh, no, just wanted to say that I'm looking forward to the film uh, How Do You Live? That's yeah, coming. I have no idea what that film's about, uh, but yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, the Wikipedia article for How Do You Live, and it says it's projected to come out sometime in either 2021 or by 2023. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be Miyazaki's last film until he makes another one. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, that's one of the fun things. Like Miyazaki has announced he's he's re- retiring multiple times. Like Princess Mononoke, he said he would retire, and then I think House of Wind Castle, he said he would retire, and the most recent one's been The Wind Rises, which seemed like the most likely to stick. And now he's making another one. So, <laughs> you know, I don't think the man's making films until he's like fully, you know 
you know, God forbid, but until he drops dead, I think he's still going to be continuing to make movies, which I'm all for because his movies are great. You know, I was I was reading the reviews for The Wind Rises, and a lot of people mentioned this as the swan song for Miyazaki. This is the final Miyazaki film. That's what it. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it, it was for like about currently like I think seven or eight years. You know, nine years or so. So like, it, it's definitely his longest hiatus in that regard. Yeah, and how do you live is based off a 1937 novel by uh, Yoshino Genzaburo. It's about a 15-year-old boy named Junichi Honda and his uncle as the youth deals with spiritual growth, poverty, and overall experience as human beings. I don't know. That's very cryptic, but that's just what yeah, the yeah, I don't says. Know. You know, even, even if you probably read the book beforehand, I'm sure he's probably going to make a bunch of weird stuff, changes to it that's not indicative. But either way, I, I, I kind of like how vague it is because, like, at that point, you don't know what the movie's going to be about. So, like... I'm looking forward to whatever it is. It's a new Miyazaki film. So of course I'm looking forward to it. So, but yeah, hopefully, yeah, I can't wait to see whenever it comes out. I know, especially with COVID and all this stuff it's where movie productions are like out of whack right now. So whenever we get this movie, I'm, I'll, I'm definitely going to be hyped for it. And yeah. All right. So final movie, the wind rises from 2013. Well, first of all, this is interesting right off the bat because this is this is like a, a a biopic or like a historical drama because it's like based on real life. You know, obviously, you know, it's very fictionalized. You know, it's not it's not like a straight up this is his life story, but it's it is Miyazaki tapping into a real life story with uh, this man named Jiro Horikosha. Horiko, I, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, but he's he was the designer of an aircraft. So, of course, a very plane driven movie. I can see why he was very attracted to his story so uh yeah it's very interesting in that regard uh what are some of your thoughts about the film i think it's i think it's very different from typical ghibli films because there are no fantasy elements to this it's very much grounded in reality and so i feel like that just appeals to me better because i like fantasy but i'm much more preferring of real life based or at least more grounded to reality type stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do agree. I, I will say the dream aspects where he's like dreaming about this like uh, older, like this is Italian guy named Caproni. Those are kind of <clears throat> a little bit fantasy-like because I'm assuming I'm assuming those are very fictionalized um, uh, elements to it. But yeah, I do agree. This is definitely probably his most down-to-earth film. And I don't think there's any other film in his discography where that's where it's like that. But even with a like a, a like a normal story, as normal as you can get, he still makes it so imaginative and like, you know, like I said, Miyazaki loves drawing planes and he really knows how to make them move in animation. Because you gotta imagine how difficult it is to draw that because of how much is like like the gears and like the the spinning, I forgot what that's called, the spinning thing that causes it to fly. Just a lot of parts to it that's got to be animated in explicit detail. But it always looks amazing. Like I mentioned in the beginning, like the main conflict of the movie arises from uh, Jiro being this person who loves planes and loves making planes. And there's like this beauty to it. He He's so fascinated by it. But at the same time, he also knows that those planes are going to be used in, in like wartime situations, you know, World War II. It's going to cause death. It's going to cause suffering. And, and like, he's kind of morally uh, complicit in that, even if he doesn't want to be. I love that scene with uh, him and Caproni where like the guy is basically like, you know if you're pursuing this 
you are also causing like people to die essentially. So like there's the, the, he knows in some way he's going to be like more like complicit in the deaths of others through the creation of this machine. But in spite of that, he still has this passion towards it because, you know, because on its own, like, it's not like he's de- designing them to be used as weapons. It's just that's what they're going to be used for, regardless of what he what he has to say. Yeah, you can almost see, like, this story as, a, like, a metaphor for Miyazaki himself. Miyazaki has this clear passion for the movies he's making. And, like, here's the thing about Miyazaki. like, despite being one of the most influential figures in anime, uh, Miyazaki does not like a lot of things that are popular with anime. Like... You know, if, if you look up his opinions on a lot of the latest like trends and stuff, you know, Miyazaki holds a very cynical opinion about a lot of it. In many ways, he doesn't really like the anime culture that in, in many ways he's helped create. So I can definitely see this kind of as a metaphor for like he has all this passion for the movies he makes and like the messages he wants to. But he's also helping a culture that he personally uh, is not a big fan of in, in some aspects. You know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling from his stuff. I'm sure some of it's like you know, uh, hyperbolic in some senses. But uh, I think it's definitely interesting to to consider the movie through the perspective of Hayao Miyazaki's own life. Because I definitely think in some ways they're meant to be kind of connected in that regard. There's also that aspect about culmination and personal life. I think a good example of this is Naoki because she has tuberculosis like Miyazaki's mother did. Again, Mm -hmm. something that connects from uh, Totoro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. And that's also a case of like, I think also that tuberculosis also kind of the sickness itself is also another like conflict, but it's also like a conflict that's just like something you can't really control in that regard. Like, it's interesting because like Jiro has the opportunity to not make those planes, but in some ways he's kind of compelled to do so, even though he knows the harm of it. But at the same time, there's also other factors in his life that you can't really control in, in that case. Um, I think that's also a kind of a big aspect of it is like, you know, you're there, there are aspects of your life. You don't have complete control over like Jiro can't control what planes are being used for. And he also, you know, can't control the fact that his uh, wife is suffering uh, from a major illness and such, you know, I, I do understand why some people think this was supposed to be like his, his final, final, final film, uh, because, you know, it, there is a sense of finality to it, you know, uh, it's just if it definitely feels a much more somber, it's much more, you know, not to say it's a complete bump fest, but like it's much more down to earth compared to his other movies, as pointed out. And it definitely just feels like a lot of his themes culminate in this film. And, and uh, yeah, I think the only criticism I have for this movie is that they really could have explored the brother sister relationship a little bit better. I feel like they just kind of sideline that a lot of the time doing those very importance to me in the story wise stuff yeah i think that's a that's a fair that's a fair point i just want to say as he grows older miyazaki becomes even more of a talented like animator you know uh like ponyo i think you know his the story of ponyo is a bit you know not as strong as suit but the animation is like some of his best out there and i think the animation for the wind rises is just truly spectacular especially the scenes where the planes are like any scene with the planes going through the air is like top notch what films would you absolutely recommend to somebody who's not familiar with any of these uh, any of these Ghibli films or Miyazaki films? Spirit Away is an obvious recommendation. Uh, I think Totoro, you know, it depends on the types of mood you want to get into. I do think, uh, honestly, uh, this is going to sound weird. It's going to sound weird, but I might, I might recommend Ponyo of all films. 
Uh, have you seen Ponyo, by the way? No, I know what it's about, though. Uh, compared to some of his other movies, it's much more simpler plot. It's, uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, it has a bit of the themes of his other movies, but it's not as explicit or, you know, as vague as his other films. In many ways, it's a kind of an enjoyable film, but it still has, like, the animation, the incredible animation, like the waves. There's, uh, there's like, the magic as- magical aspect of it. There's some great character designs and, like, dynamic moments some great characters you know i would recommend i would recommend you check uh that as maybe like a primer and then after that check out like the great stuff like princess mononoke spirit away totoro etc etc and then watch all of them because you should because they're all good movies i actually think that you should start with totoro because i think personally it's the simplest one yeah that's that's fair i think that's another one you could also recommend because like yeah, it is very simple, not as heavy, not as like heavy thematically, uh, but still having all that Ghibli magic. I mean, I mean, for, for Christ's sake, Totoro's the mascot for a reason. Uh, you know, he's a very iconic and dynamic looking character. And you mentioned that there's at least so far, there's no bad Ghibli movie or bad Miyazaki mm-hmm. movie. So what would you say your least favorite Ghibli film or Miyazaki film is? I might say it might be it, it might be Totoro. Not gonna lie, not because I have anything against the movie. I just find it the least uh, engaging to me personally. You know, because like you know, be, uh, it's it, it's much. It's probably his most slice of life type movie, so you, it's enjoyable in that regard. But like, I, I definitely wasn't nearly as gauge. Although to be fair, it's been uh, it, it. You know, it's not a film I've watched as much as some of his other movies. So. Again, maybe I should maybe I should watch it a couple more times and see how I feel about it. But uh, it definitely, you know, there's not a whole lot of like plot. I don't know. For me personally, I just find it not nearly as engaging as some of his other movies. Although, again, I, I'm in the minority. I know a lot of people love Totoro, so like that's just my opinion. But that even that, I won't say it's a bad movie or anything like that. And I still enjoy it quite a bit. If you haven't check out check out Miyazaki's work, he is a phenomenal director. He's he's done a lot for animation. He's done a lot for cinema in general. I I genuinely think he's one of the best film directors in general, not just animated specifically. And I think you know because when it comes to animation directors, like they don't have the same like name recognition status. Like there are a lot of great ones out there. You know Henry Selick for like claymation, for instance. You know Miyazaki, he has that iconicness to him, this like world-reaching appeal that is not replicated in a lot of other animated directors, particularly foreign animated directors, you know, outside of you know the people who are interested in that kind of stuff. So I think there and I think there is for a reason. I think there is just something special about Miyazaki's films that is hard to replicate. It's it's when whenever Miyazaki leaves this world, it's going to be a sad day because he is truly an irreplaceable figure in in cinema and exactly. animation. And and the fact is, a lot of his themes are very poignant. Yeah, he has such great characters. He has such. It's great on a feminist level, an environmental level, an anti-war level, all that stuff. It's it's like very great themes explored in interesting ways. All right, so Richard, do you have any no, final comments about Studio Ghibli, Miyazaki, or anything else we forgot to discuss? You know, obviously this is a this is a Hayao Miyazaki specific episode, but if you haven't checked out, uh, you know, there's also Isaiah Isaiah I can't I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, but Isaiah Takahata, who's also had like a bunch of great works to him. He's he some of his works are famous, not nearly to the same level as Miyazaki, unfortunately, but like Grave of the Fireflies. Uh, you know, Wolf, I think it was Kaguya, the princess, 
uh, Kaguya Princess. He's made a lot of great works also. Unfortunately, he's passed away. So, uh, but yeah, great stuff. And just check out a lot of Ghibli's movies. Uh, you know, besides Takahata and Miyazaki, some of them are a bit more hit than uh, are more hit or, hit or miss. But still, check them out because I, I've heard recently that Studio Ghibli's been going through some rough times lately. Because uh, you know, once Miyazaki retired, it's kind of difficult to fill in the man's shoes in that regard, and it's a, a daunting task. But still, definitely check check support Studio Ghibli because like there's something special about that 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 company and their talent. All right, Richard, thank you so much for agreeing to be on this episode of Let's Talk Media. Yeah, this was fun. This was a great experience. I loved talking about movies. I love talking about Miyazaki. So this was, uh, this was great.